You know, this is uh, Martin Luther King Day weekend, and um, so one of the things that happened this weekend is there's some there's something called the Points of Light Youth Institute or something like that. Points of Light and Youth, something or other. And um, uh, what it is uh, practically here in Anchorage, what that boils down to is youth groups uh, in churches all around the the city uh, did service projects um, over the course of the weekend, and there was a group at the food bank that that many of us participate uh, at at down on 88th Street. So there was a group of youth from St. John United Methodist and First Presbyterian who were there. And because I talk for a living, I was uh, given the opportunity to to tell them how it all works. So I was telling them about the food safety requirements and, you know, how to how to operate a box cutter without, you know, doing, you know, a 911 call or something. So so we we did that sort of thing. Um and I found myself um Having to explain one thing, this is this is an old picture. There was snow there yesterday, but um, but that's that's what it looks like. The the way it works. Um, well, I'll come to that in a minute. Anyway, so um, there was a mystery I could not explain to them, and the mystery is is um, uh, why don't they bring a box? So let me explain. So, there's there's laughter. So knowing laughter. So there's a mystery there. Why don't people bring a box? Now the way it works is the Alaska Food Bank has a warehouse downtown. And they um, load up a truck full of full of food, um, and it's on pallets. They bring tables, so it's really mobile. And the idea is all they need is a parking lot and some volunteers. So this is an example of the one down on 88th Street so uh, at the Nazarene Church there. So what, what we do is we take the food off the pallets, and we uh, put it on tables as much as we can, and then we leave room on the, the table for people to slide a box along. So people will... Pick the items they want, and if they don't want any of that, then they don't have to take it. So that's the idea. But every week for the three years, almost three years that I've been uh, volunteering at the food bank, um, people come week after week and say, have you got any boxes? Because I didn't bring one. And that's kind of a mystery to me because some of them have been coming since before I came. So you've been doing this longer than me. You know how this works. You know that there's too much food to carry out to the car in your arms. Why don't you have a box? So it's just this mystery. And I was thinking about it um, when uh, when I was preparing this this uh, worship, uh, this message today. Why why did they run out of wine? There's this mystery. Why did they not do what they must have known they needed to do? This this uh, this story that we heard, the story of the the water that was changed to wine. Um, is sometimes referred to as Jesus' first miracle. But that's not quite what John says. John says that this was the miraculous sign, this miracle was a miraculous sign that was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. So um, he might have done other miracles um, before then, but this is the first one that in which he revealed his glory. So, so John says it is a sign. It is not just a miracle. It is a miraculous sign. So what does he mean by that? Well, we know what signs are, but uh, if you were here last week, um, you you remember, and, and if you weren't, uh, you can listen online, but um, uh, what we talked about last week is is that John is an opinionated gospel. He's not trying to be a neutral observer who's simply recording the facts about Jesus. He's saying, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole list of things I could tell you about, the things I saw Jesus do or the things I heard Jesus say, but I'm not going to share those with you. I'm going to give you a an opinionated telling of what I encountered as Jesus' disciple so that you may believe. 
John has a purpose. He wants people to believe. And the reason for that is he says that it is by believing we receive eternal life. That, that is, those who believe in Jesus, those who trust in Jesus, can have eternal life. And he also says that they have the power to become children of God. Now, John is going to tell us as we go through this series, he's going to tell us what he means by eternal life, what he means by children of God. But the the key point for us is he's saying this is something that's going somewhere. I want you to arrive at a particular destination. And so the signs are designed to lead us there. So some of us remember back before GPS, we actually had to pay attention to road signs. And now somebody just tells us, you know, recalculating and we can, we can do it a second time or whatever. But there was a day back in, back in the day, some of us are old enough to remember road signs. And John has basically set up a set of road signs throughout his gospel that will lead us to that destination. Um, the, the, another way of looking at it, I, I love this image. Um, the, uh, the British writer N.T. Wright, he says that John is, is giving us kind of the last chapter of a mystery. That Jesus is a mystery. But John gives us the last chapter where the um, where the detective kind of explains that you know the dog was barking in the night and uh, you know the 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 horn on the ship blew at that right moment and basically the butler did it so so there's a series of clues that the detective kind of walks us through in the last chapter of the mystery so we say oh okay all right now I understand so so whether you want to think of it as a sign that that leads you someplace or a clue that helps you unravel a mystery. That's what John is getting at. He says, this is the first clue. And so the question is, what is it about this that is a clue? It's a mystery, but John says it's more than a mystery. I mean, it's, it's, it's a miracle, but John says it's more than a miracle. It is a clue or a sign to what Jesus is up to. So um, uh, there, is, there is built into this a small, a small mystery. There's a small mystery, which is the one I spoke of earlier. Why didn't they have the wine? I mean, they knew better. They should have had the wine, just like the people who come to the food pantry should have a box. This is not, this is not rocket surgery. They should bring a box, and these people should have had wine, but they didn't. Um, John doesn't give us a hint about that. He says, the next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. So where is Cana? Canaan is someplace in Galilee. There's actually two competitors for this site. There's two villages today that are two uh, sites that archaeologists point to. There's one that kind of is the majority opinion, and then there's a minority holdout opinion that says, no, you got it wrong, it's this other place. So it's one of these two sites probably, but uh, there's this village named Cana. We heard last week about Nathaniel who comes from, from Cana. But there was a, a village there a couple of miles from Nazareth, and there was a wedding. So that's all we know. We don't know anything about the couple. We don't know anything about their family. We don't know where they fit in the kind of the social strata. We don't know if they were rich or poor, young or old. There was just a wedding. So what about the wedding? Um, well, Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. But then the unthinkable happens. They don't have any wine. Now, for us, that's, you know, well, that's too bad. But for, for them, it would have been an absolute social disaster. Um, uh, weddings in that culture could last as long as a week, and pretty much everybody was invited. And I don't mean just everybody you know, but everybody, probably everybody, literally everybody in the village of Cana was probably invited to this uh, wedding celebration, and people from nearby villages like the mother of Jesus and Jesus and his disciples. So it would have been a huge thing. Every Everybody is going to form an opinion 
of the family uh, that whose whose uh, children are getting married. They're going to have they're going to form an opinion about the families. They're going to form an opinion about the couple. They're going to form an opinion about the couple's children. So 15 years from now, when Junior is running a little bit wild and doing badly in algebra, they're going to say, well, of course, what would you expect? Remember, when his parents got married, they ran out of wine. So it's a terrible, terrible thing. You, uh, seriously, this is the way people would have looked at it. They would have said that that marriage was always doomed. We could see it from the start because they ran out of wine. And so why would they do that? Why would they expose themselves to this this uh, social disaster that has now happened? And we don't know. John doesn't tell us. He simply says the wine ran out. Now, why is that? Maybe they got bad advice. Somebody said, well, you know, everybody drinks about, you know, one tablespoon of wine apiece, so, you know, all you need is a quart or something like that. So um, maybe they just got bad advice. Maybe they got good advice and they paid no attention to it. I've heard that sometimes uh, people in their 20s who are getting married um, don't always enjoy listening to advice. Um, uh, I, I know one who was not very good at that. So um, maybe they didn't listen to the advice. Maybe they got ripped off. Maybe they ordered it, and when it arrived, uh, half of it had gone bad. It was now vinegar. So who knows? Who knows what happened? They ordered it. They got ripped off. Maybe it just didn't arrive at all. Um, you know, some of us in, live in Alaska, and we order things from outside, and, you know, Amazon tells you how long it'll take, but Amazon is thinking that Alaska's, you know, that state next to, um, next to, uh, Seattle. And there's a little bit of a journey that's involved. And sometimes if you cut that corner too tight, then you have a disaster. So, so whatever the reason is, um, maybe they got ripped off or maybe it just hasn't arrived yet. Maybe they're scrambling to do what they can. Um, one of the commentators I read said maybe they were poor. Maybe they said, look, we live in a village. Everybody knows our circumstances. We're just going to have to hope for the best. Maybe people will go easy on the wine. But whatever circumstances, they ran out of wine. That's the small mystery. Why would anybody run out of wine? But it's part of this bigger mystery. Remember, we're exploring the mystery of who Jesus is and what he's doing because John wants us to believe in him. He wants us to put our trust in Jesus so we can have eternal life and become children of God. So the big mystery is, how does this fit into that? What is Jesus going to teach us when he does something? And the answer is, Jesus is going to teach us, you know, what is the first thing, the first sign, the first clue? What is the first lesson Jesus has to teach us? And the answer is grace. Now, if you're a church person, uh, you know that there's a particular meaning for grace. If you're not a church person, there's all kinds of meanings for grace. But within the church, uh, grace has a particular meaning. It means to uh, get what you don't deserve. Or I'd like to put it this way. I'd like to put it in contrast to something else because we all understand this other concept, and it's karma. Karma is is a concept that's found in a number of world religions. It originated somewhere in India, and it expanded out throughout Asia, and it's found in Hinduism, it's found in Buddhism, and some other world religions. But karma is an obvious thing. Karma is a, a, a very simple idea. It's the idea that that there is a cause and an effect, that things don't happen by accident, that that you get what's coming to you, that what goes around comes around, that that ultimately that there there's a set of cosmic books and they will eventually balance. So we understand the idea of karma. And grace is the opposite. Karma says 
if you make your bed, you're going to have to sleep in it. Okay? Um, but grace says the opposite. Some of those world religions say it's going to happen right away. Could happen today, could happen tomorrow, but someday when you're not expecting, karma's going to catch up with you. Some of them say you might make it all the way to the next life, but God will judge you. That that there will be judgment ultimately. Some of them say, actually, it won't even happen um, after you die. It'll happen in the reincarnation, that you're going to be reincarnated and you'll either go up the ladder or down the ladder, depending on how that particular faith tradition understands the idea of karma. But they all have in common this idea that ultimately the books balance, that ultimately there is a cause and there is an effect and that things will catch up with you someday. So that's karma, and grace is the opposite. And Jesus came to demonstrate not karma, but grace. And I think one of the one of the great pointers to that here is um, uh, Jesus' mother says they have no wine, and Jesus says that's not my problem, right? Now that sounds un- uncaring, but we haven't heard the rest of the story. But what Jesus says at the beginning is he says, that's not my problem. That's not my fault. I wasn't the one who was supposed to provide the wine, right? I am without blame here. You can't come to me and say, Jesus, you owe us wine because we did everything we were supposed to do and you owe us wine now. Jesus is saying, I have no involvement in this except as a guest. I did everything right. Don't blame me, right? So Jesus is saying, that, that if, if we're going to operate from a karma worldview, then that's the end of it. This is going to be a disaster. People will gossip and people will learn their lesson. And the next time there's a wedding in this town, you can bet people will plan ahead and they will have the right amount of wine. If Jesus were here to teach us karma, that's where the story would end. He would say, not my problem. So he says, not my problem. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus goes on. He says, he, he has this cryptic remark, and we're going to learn more about this as we go through John. He says, he says, my time has not yet come. But his mother tells the servants, do whatever he says. Right now, at this point, Jesus is operating outside of the karma worldview. Jesus is doing something that he has no obligation to do. So what does he do? He says, to um, the servants. He says, uh, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this is uh, John tells us, he, he doesn't tell us all the details. We're curious about why didn't they have wine. But he does tell us that something special about these jars. He says that they were used for Jewish ceremonial washing. And the reason for that is he wants us to understand, like with the readings we heard earlier today, the reading from, from Isaiah or from Amos, this idea that God is a God who wants us to have a party. Ultimately, the greatest party ever. So there's all these passages in the Jewish scriptures that look forward to this, this banquet at the end of time, this, this great wedding feast, um, the, the, the water that flows out and irrigates the trees of, of, so that people can have fruit every season, all this stuff. John is telling us Jesus is operating within the Jewish framework, but he's not stopping with the Jewish framework. He's going beyond it. But John wants us to know this is not a repudiation of Judaism. He's not saying Jesus is just sweeping the table clean and saying, let's start all over again. He's saying, within the Jewish framework, 
there have always been indicators that pointed toward what I'm going to do. Essentially, there were signs back in Judaism the same way Jesus is going to give us these new signs. So he says, within that Jewish framework, Jesus did something. And what did he do? Well, he said, fill them up with water. So they do. And then he says, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was not wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants do, he called the bridegroom over and he said, a host always serves the best wine first. He says, you did this wrong. If you had any doubt about how much um, the, the quality of your wine or how much you should serve the best stuff first, and then people will remember that and they won't notice as much when later on when it runs out. This reminds me, there's a, a Woody Allen joke about these two ladies who are talking about a restaurant. And one of them says that um, uh, they, they didn't like, neither one of them liked the restaurant. One says, it's because the food there is so bad. And the other one says, yes, and such small portions. And, <laughs> and, and I think about that because this is, you know, they've been serving the not very good wine and they're also running out of it. So, so Jesus is basically completely upsetting the, what, you know, the, the, the image people would have walked away from this wedding with. Um, instead of, instead of it's a bad wedding, now he's, he's turned it upside down. They even had the great wine at the end. And then John says, John wraps it up, he says, this miraculous sign in Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And the disciples believed in him. So he wraps it up. That's, that's the lesson. Jesus, the sign is the sign of this wedding where Jesus did what they did not deserve. They had coming to them a social disaster. But Jesus did not give them a social disaster. They had grace instead of karma. So what is the lesson for us? What is, what is the lesson for us? Um, is the lesson to swing for the fences? To aim higher than you think you can possibly attain? Well, maybe it is. Maybe it is. I think a lot of us, we aim for things we know, uh, and, you know, not just for sure, but beyond for sure. We want a nice safety margin. We want to hedge our bets. So we aim very low. And maybe we should aim a little higher. Maybe we should say, you know what, I can't pull this off in my own strength, but I'm a Christian, and so I'm going to aim a little bit higher. There was a missionary about the time of the American Revolution. He was one of the first British missionaries to go to India. His name was William Carey, and he famously said, he said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And I think a lot of us don't do either one very well, but they're coupled that if we really do expect great things from God, then we will attempt great things for God. And if we don't, we probably won't. So maybe the lesson for us is really to swing for the fences, just to do our best. We're going we're gonna to do our best to knock it out of the park. And if we don't succeed, well, who knows? If we believed in karma, we wouldn't do that. But we believe in grace. Maybe maybe that's part of the answer, too, is we should invite Jesus to our parties. You know, if we took on tasks, we're going to throw a party here, we're going to invite a bunch of people, maybe we should invite Jesus. And actually, to visualize that. Uh, uh, psychologists tell us that if we visualize something, it achieves 70 to 80% of the same brain activity as actually experiencing it. So maybe we should invite Jesus to our parties. Say, Jesus, do you think we've got enough wine? 
You know, because maybe we won't. But again, maybe Jesus, because Jesus isn't here about karma, maybe Jesus will bail us out. Maybe Jesus, who is rich in mercy, will have pity on us and fix what we should have been smart enough to not do in the first place. So maybe that's the lesson. And of course, the, the last lesson is always to do what he says. The lesson that, that Mary gave the servants, do whatever he says. You know, when people come to the food pantry without a box, what do you think we do? Do you think we tell them, no, you've been here enough. You should have learned by now. It's about time you learned your lesson. You're only going to get to walk away with as much food as you can carry in your arms. No, because we want you to learn your lesson. This is the reason you're poor, because you don't learn your lesson. No, we don't do that. We do what Jesus does. We say, I don't know. I don't know why you don't have a box. It could be you just are not a very quick learner. And it takes you three or four years to figure out, hey, I should bring a box. Maybe you are poor and you're coming from work and there's no place at your job where you can save a box. Maybe you're coming on a bike or a skateboard and you just can't carry a box both ways. We don't know. But what we do is we rummage around and we say, well, let us get some things unloaded. Once they're on the tables, we'll have some some spare boxes and we'll put them at the end there and you can get one. Because we're not about karma. We're about grace. And the reason we're not about karma is because Jesus is not about karma. Jesus came to demonstrate that the underlying reality of the universe is not what it appears to be. It is not the karma that we expect. It is the grace we would never guess. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Most gracious and loving God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his ministry and the the signs that he gave to point us to a place where we can believe. Lord, we thank you that this universe is not operating only according to karma, but it operates according to grace. And we thank you that Jesus taught us that we can we can go beyond what what karma dictates. We can we can give more than we are obligated to give. We can swing for the fences. And ultimately, that if we do what you call us to do, Jesus will make things right. We pray that you would guide us as we go about this work. In his name, amen.